According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in John chapter 14. I'm sorry, John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. We are in episodes 20 and 21, Judas Revealed and Defects. That's episode 20, verse 21, Jesus warns about further desertion. So far we've covered Luke's record, which is the shortest account under point one, uh, Mark's record, Matthew's record, and we are now at main point five. Uh, Let's see. There we go. Main point five. John provides the fullest narrative. John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. And this is where we'll pick up our study from where we left it off last week. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have to assemble together. Father, we don't deserve this opportunity, but here it is. We acknowledge that it's your grace that's provided it. and We humble ourselves under uh, the authority of your truth. And uh, Father, we ask that you would set aside distractions. We ask that you would teach us. And Father, uh, build us up in the faith and equip us in the inner man. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right. John chapter 13, verse 21 says, When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Uh, The details here are slightly different than those recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We have the fullest of the accounts here. As I said, uh, Luke had the shortest version. And uh, they began to inquire amongst themselves, we were told. They started asking, you know, who do you think it's going to be? Who do you think it's going to be? Who do you think it's going to be? And all of the uh, pooling of their collective ignorance did not allow them to come to an understanding because only one knew anything, and he was the liar and not about to say, oh, well, it's me. You know, so they just kept asking each other, and uh, nobody knew anything. Uh, In Mark's record, um, we have... uh, A little bit extra that's added there. And uh, Jesus points out the one who dipped with me in the bowl is the one. And uh, as a means of tipping off the traitor that Jesus knows who he is. And uh, we discussed that at some length. In uh, Matthew, we're told that they came one by one and denied it. They denied it's not me, is it? It's not me, is it? And And even Judas said, it's not me, is it? And Jesus said, you have said so yourself. And uh, so he tipped him off. I thought very discreetly by saying the one with whom I dip my hand in the bowl. Um, Then he said to his face, he said, you have said so yourself. All right. Each of these is the is the repentance opportunity. Each one of these is um, another occasion of grace whereby if uh, if Judas was to humble himself or respond to the rebuke or in any other way, uh, change his mind about what he's doing, that he had that opportunity to just 
fall on his face and plead for mercy and confess it all and 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 beg for uh, for forgiveness. And uh, at each of these steps, he has uh, rejected that. And uh, we'll see the final step here in uh, in John 13. All right. This is the uh, third time that John records a spiritual troubling that Jesus experienced. Uh, we had it in John 11 when everybody was weeping and wailing over uh, the death of Lazarus. We had it in John 12. And uh, we have it here in John 13:21. The context of John 12:27. Uh, is in the uh, the first day in the temple of this week on Palm Monday, and having already been uh, uh, greeted by the children and the singing and the palm branches, and then uh, Andrew bringing him the Gentiles. Um, at that point, then is when uh, Jesus says, "Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour." And uh, that's where uh, the voice comes out of heaven for the second time. Did so at the baptism and does so again here when he makes his entrance into the temple. All right, so this is the third time that this has happened. Some subpoints under this. Once Judas departs, Jesus will admonish the eleven to not let their hearts be troubled. All right. He himself is troubled, but he admonishes them not to let their hearts be troubled. Okay. So how do we take that? Is that just hypocritical on Christ's part? To say, uh, you know, I, it's okay for me, but don't you do this? No. <laughs> I think we're all right with that. There's distinctions to be made, of course, between what he was going through and approaching the cross. What we all go through from time to time. Um, we are going to be troubled. Uh, we just need to make sure that we ourselves are not troubling ourselves. Or that we're not making it worse by not walking in faith, you understand. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is being troubled was certainly not because he stopped trusting in God and uh, the issues related to that. We're going to expand upon that shortly as we get into chapter 14. But this spiritual agony of anticipation is going to culminate in the Gethsemane anguish. He will be so troubled, he'll be sweating the great drops of blood. He will say, my soul is troubled to the point of death. All right. And uh, if you are ever brought to such a point in your own uh, spiritual walk, in your own testing, then uh, you're going to want to understand why or how it is that these passages present this doctrine, not in a carnal way. Jesus is not... I used to think, I was growing up thinking that any kind of emotional turmoil meant you didn't have enough doctrine. It meant you were in emotional revolt. It meant you didn't have mastery of the circumstances and details of life. If you had any kind of trouble, it was your fault. Get doctrine, get over it. All right. Well, I can't say that related to Jesus Christ here. He is not that he's insufficiently mature. It's not that he has a, a lack of doctrinal understanding. All right. And uh, we need to have a better approach to what uh, this turmoil is about. I think I just saw children walk in. I don't know if that's we don't have nursery today, do we? OK. So those are the two subpoints that are point A. Point B, we also have here in this passage the very first reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved. And uh, we will see him again in chapter 19, chapter 20, chapter 21. And this is undoubtedly the Apostle John. Um, I have no doubts in my mind that this is the Apostle John. But since he is not technically named in the in the verse, uh, if someone wants to dispute that, um, you know, I'll be gracious and have a relaxed mental attitude towards him and say, okay, that's fine. I think Barnabas wrote Hebrews too. I can't prove that either. All right. I think the case is a lot stronger here uh, related to this in the sense that 
This, uh, this is an expression that's not included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't reference the apostle whom Jesus loved. He appears to be a, a key disciple. He appears to be the most intimate disciple with our Savior. Um, it boggles the mind that if he's not the apostle John, uh, who would he be that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all ignore? Okay. Why is it that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about John, James and John, of course, brothers, and John, the, this fourth gospel, never talks about him by name? See, I think it's the author's way to, to um, not highlight himself or to not mention his own name, but referring to himself in, uh, in this way. Let's look at these real quickly. John 19:26. Is that the crucifixion? And he's on the cross and standing by the cross of Jesus where his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And uh, there's some work to be done with this. The, uh, when you compare all four Gospels and the record of the women standing at the cross and uh, put them in columns side by side and try to work your way through and mix and match them and identify them, um, it is... Are there three women listed there or four women listed there? You know, his mother, his mother's sister. And is that the same as Mary, the wife of Clopas? And then there's Mary Magdalene. So you could say, well, there's three women mentioned there. There's Mary. I mean, there's his mother. Then his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas. And then there's Mary Magdalene. And some people read that verse and they read it a hundred times and they say, well, that's three women. Or... You can read it and say there's four women there. There's Jesus' mother, his mother's sister. And then the third one mentioned is Mary, the wife of Clopas. And then there's Mary Magdalene. All right. And you can say there's four women listed there, three of which are named Mary. And if uh, his mother's sister is Mary, the wife of Clopas, if you accept that, I don't, but if you do, then you have to accept the fact that, that you have a family with two sisters, both named Mary. All right. Not impossible, of course, but we uh, don't see that elsewhere in the Scriptures. It's never been done in other examples and uh, circumstances there. So we don't have brothers with the same name in the, in the Bible record. We don't have sisters with the same name in the Bible record. Uh, so that's why I believe there's four women there. His mother's sister, by the way, is also John's mother, uh, Salome, the mother of James and John, the Mrs. Zebedee. All right. And uh, again, I think that's consistent with him not mentioning his own name. He's not mentioning his mother's name. He just says it's Jesus' mother and his mother's sister. All right. And then when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby with all these other women, including his own mom. Uh, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now, he has three stepbrothers. There's James and Judas and Simon. And, and why didn't he uh, entrust Mary to one of his brothers? They're, and I think that's important. I think it's a doctrinal statement that he's making is that until the upper room, his brothers are still unbelievers. Until the resurrection Sunday, his brothers are still unbelievers. And he's not going to and trust his mother as a widow to the care of unbelievers, even if they are their, her biological children. Uh, he'd be much better off in her nephew's house than his, uh, you know, the Apostle John, the, the um, 
from all tradition, was the youngest of the twelve disciples, uh, would be the one uh, best suited to uh, spiritually minded as a believer to uh, care for Mary's need. All right, the next chapter over in chapter 20. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Okay. And, and again, if this is not John, why write it this way? <laughs> why would the author of this gospel write it this way? He has no problem naming Simon Peter. No problem naming Mary Magdalene. No problem naming Mary the wife of Clopas or Mary, you know. Why is it that he's cagey about his mother's sister's name and the disciple whom Jesus loves' name? See, it's, it's only natural to assume that it's the author's way of not naming himself specifically and just letting it go at that. They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb and the two were running together. And here's a clue. Peter's pretty old. The uh, apostle whom Jesus loved is uh, the youngest of the group. Young and thin and athletic and uh, outraces him to the tomb. <laughs> the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. So there it is. All right, Doug. All right. And stooping and looking in. Anyway, there's more, more to that story there. Turning to chapter 21, we have it twice. Verse 7 and verse 20. They're out there fishing, and uh, Jesus is walking along the beach, and uh, they don't know it's him at first. And then uh, the first one to pick up on it is the disciple whom Jesus loved in verse 7. It says, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came into the little boat. They were not far from land. And uh, so forth. Now, we have this disciple whom Jesus loved, and he's consistently associated with Peter. It's Peter and this other guy. Peter and this other guy. Always. Okay? And, well, when we get into the book of Acts, what do we find? We find that it's Peter and John. Okay? In the early chapters there in Acts. And they're brought before the Sanhedrin. They're ordered uh, not to testify. They're arrested. They're released. Things like that. It's Peter and John. The uh, two of the three reputed pillars of the church in uh, the book of Acts. All right. We'll, we'll say more about that shortly. The other theories that are out there, that it was Lazarus, that it was uh, Matthias, that it was uh, whomever. There's other speculations, none of which have the shred of, of possibilities like John himself has. And so, plus the unanimous church tradition from uh, Polycarp and Tertullian and, and guys that were in a position to know. All right. Back to John 13 then. Peter's motion to John indicates that intimate proximity to Christ facilitates more comprehensive information. Here's a general principle. We need to apply this today. Peter makes a motion to John. Tell us who he's talking about. And what does that tell us? If you want to know more, be closer to the Lord. <laughs> you want to know more about His will? then be reclining in his bosom. You want to know more about what pleases him? Be close to him. And if you want to be in a position to get more answers, don't be on another couch across the room. <laughs> 
Be right there and ask. Lean back and ask. And I love this. To me, this is, this is a month's worth of Sundays right here. <laughs> Leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Lord, who is it? So, when you don't know, do you go to him in prayer? When you're seeking his will, are you asking? Okay, the promise is, knock and it shall be open. Asking you shall receive. Seeking you shall find. That's a threefold promise. You know, he is not going to give you a snake when you're asking for a fish. He's, if, you're, if you're seeking his will, if any, that's a wisdom application, is it not? And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. And so the whole idea that, uh, and this is the, the, one of the, the key features of philematology, of knowing the will of God, a huge clue is we want to nurture this intimate proximity. Intimate proximity, reclining on Jesus' bosom. All right? Very related to the term that we have in John 1.18. The whole purpose for the, the incarnation ministry, the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ, is to reveal the Father. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God. Notice what's the, the term here. He has explained Him. He has exegeted Him. He has, it's the same word we use for exegesis. It means he, he has revealed him in nitty-gritty detail. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who created the universe? No. The only begotten God who uh, has omniscience? No. Who is in the bosom of the Father. It's stressed that way. The intimate proximity with the Father. He knows the Father. He knows Him well. And the, um, the great value of knowing somebody so well, whether it's a spouse or a family member or a, a church member, a brother in Christ, okay, or the Lord, is that a lot of times the better you know them, you know them better than they know themselves sometimes. <laughs> you know what they're going to say before you even ask. You know what their thinking is. You know what their attitude is going to be. You know, you know, a mother tells their child, well, go ask your dad. No, I know what he's going to say. <laughs> That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> right? Because the children know that, that dad's going to hold firm and mom's a softy. Okay? And because they know that, why do they know that? How do they know that? Because they know their parents. Just by way of example. But other ways. What if, uh, what if, um, um, well, well, we'll let that go. All right. So that's sub point C. Peter's motion to John indicates that intimate proximity to Christ facilitates more comprehensive information. More comprehensive information. So, two believers that are struggling in their Christian walk, and uh, one, uh, you know, uh, attends. Uh, two or three Sundays a month, um, and another believer attends Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, never misses a prayer meeting, is constantly seeking the Lord. All right? Of those two that I'm describing, which is the believer that's going to be uh, more intimate with Christ, 
quicker to discern the will of God, quicker to come under convictions pertaining to the will of God. And of those two believers I described, who is going to drift the longest for weeks or months or even years on end saying, well, gee, I guess I I just really don't know. All right. And then they just kind of finally make a decision and they have no more certainty than an unbeliever that flipped a coin. At least an unbeliever who flipped a coin has a 50-50 chance of doing something right. The believer that proceeds on on a doubting basis, according to Romans 14, has a 0% chance of doing anything right. Whatever is not a faith is sin. You cannot proceed on a doubting basis. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before the Lord. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in that which he approves. But if you are still doubting, then you may not proceed. Doubting does not allow you to proceed on a faith basis. All right, so can't stress this enough. The value of being in the word, abiding in the word of God, the word of God abiding in you, occupying with Christ, saturating the circumstances with prayer and not doing it alone. Praying with your spouse, praying with your brothers and sisters in Christ, praying with your pastor and all the activities there. All right. And then John, the apostle, is provided the most detailed insight. John has provided the most detailed insight. This announcement was not given to the twelve. This announcement was only for John. Reclining on Jesus' breast, there's no indication in this anywhere that anybody else was able to hear this answer. You know, uh, also, I think it's, (laughs) it's interesting. When Simon Peter gestures... All right, he says, one of you will betray me, and the disciples are all looking around at a loss. And there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him, just gestured to him in some form or fashion. I don't know, left hand, right hand, two hands. Could have been a nod, could have been a, you know, uh, whatever. Doesn't matter. But in the gesture... This is what was communicated. I don't think it was verbally communicated. I think the gesture said this. The gesture said, tell who it is. He doesn't ask John to ask. He asked John to tell. Tell who it is. Okay? Tell who it is. And it's kind of, it's interesting. I, I think in, I think Peter here assumes that John already knows. <laughs> Now, John doesn't already know. John has to lean back and ask. But Peter doesn't know that. Peter assumes that John already knows. That John was tipped off ahead of time. That John has probably for weeks and months, uh, um, you know, he didn't just become the disciple whom Jesus loves today. He's, he's been in that position of intimacy for some time. And Peter just assumes that John already knows. Um, so emotions tell us. And since he doesn't know, and even if he did know, it wouldn't necessarily be his position to tell anyway, he reclines back. Now, Lord, who is it? Then Jesus answered. And and here's the thing. I think that this statement is different from the statement in in Matthew and Mark. I think it's only for John's ears. Which is why none of the others at the table had a clue what was happening. So Jesus answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. 
And so John is given the, uh, the most detailed insight. First of all, John has the traitor identified. So point one, the traitor is identified. He says, it's, it's Judas. Just watch. The one that I give the morsel to. And he's the only one that's told ahead of time who it's going to be. The traitor is identified. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And this is a way that John learns the identity and none of the other ten have a clue. All right. And that for Jesus to dip and give is different than what Matthew and Mark are talking about when it says in, in Luke, where it says that they reach their hands in together. Okay. So not every commentary takes it that way, but I, I just I cannot reconcile the two activities. Two hands reaching in together is different than Jesus dipping and giving. Um, likewise, when he talks about the two hands dipping together, he said, we already did that. It was a past activity. The one that dipped with me was past over and done with here. It's future. He says, I'm going to give the morsel. And then he does so. All right. So when he took, when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. So the traitor is identified and Satan is identified. Point two, Satan is identified. <laughs> right there in the upper room with Jesus and the, and the disciples. That make you think? We got demons in here today? Is that who uh, knocked out our internet connection? <laughs> All right. Um, I hope not. I pray not. I do ask at the beginning of every, you know, he would hedge us about, but would he, would he permit, would he permit fallen angels in here or demons in here? I pray not. Okay. I don't worry about it too much. I figure if they're here, he allows it. Okay. If he allows it, he's got a purpose for it. I can't see him anyway, so who cares? <laughs> All right. Now, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Satan then entered into him. Now, it's legitimate to consider, did John is writing about this 50 years later. Okay, so he obviously knows about it at the time he writes about it. Did he know about it at the time it happened? Did he see Satan enter into him on that night? Thursday night, April 2nd, 33 A.D. Did he see that at the time or was it only in later years? Was it revealed to him in later years? Was it revealed to him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he's writing this gospel record? Um, make a case either way. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. And so the third detail is that the other disciples, their thinking is here disclosed. Their thinking is disclosed. This is, this is unbelievable. 
I mean, I think knowing, you know, seeing Satan when Satan is normally invisible is pretty extraordinary. But knowing thoughts is also extraordinary because nobody knows thoughts except God. We can't read minds. Satan can't read minds. No one knows the inner thoughts of a man except the spirit of man which is in him. Only God looks upon the thoughts and intents of the heart. And yet here's the thinking. Some were supposing because Jesus had the, Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast. How does John know that? How does he know what they were thinking? Or else that he should give something to the poor. There were some that were thinking that, uh, that the treasurer is supposed to go uh, provide something in, in the, out of the benevolence fund. So it's, it's remarkable. The identification of Satan, the observation that Satan entered into Judas at that moment, and the disclosing of the thoughts are pretty awesome. <laughs> now, did that happen on that Thursday night? Or is it only through the inspiration of Scripture that these things are being disclosed in the written gospel narrative? In which case, we ought to include... Uh, um, well, some people include John, a lot of people include John in verse 28 among the no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. I think he was tipped off when he said, it's the one to whom I give the morsel. He then showed him who he gave the morsel to. And then he said, what you do, do quickly. And so when I translate verse 28, when I say no one, I say none of the other disciples, excluding John, of course. John understood it because John was the one that was tipped off. Okay. Now, under point six then, what I like to do, I've got a, a resource I use extensively for this study <clears throat> called uh, Jesus Christ, The Greatest Life. It's been out for a number of years. Its old title used to be The Life of Christ in Stereo. Uh, for part of its publication history, it was called... Uh, the greatest life, and then they combine the two into uh, this version called Jesus Christ, the greatest life. And it has a, a beneficial hybrid narrative. Let me just bring this up and we can read it. And what this does, uh, this, the author's name here is Cheney, C-H-E-N-E-Y, not the vice president, but, you know, another guy named Cheney. And uh, you can you can get it at christianbook.com or bookstores and things. Uh, but what he does, he actually blends the text. He blends the, the, the English text from all the different gospel records in what they've concluded is the best sequence of events. So it's a harmony of the gospels, but even within each episode, you will have expressions blended. You will have phrases. You will have dialogue that will be that will be uh, arranged in a sequence so that not one word of the Bible is removed. Okay. Now, if, if words are duplicated, he doesn't have to duplicate all the words. But if there's a phrase, an expression, a term that's used in any gospel, it will show up in this, in this text, this reading text. So here's the episode, Someone Will Betray, in the color codes. 
uh, may not show up on the screen the same way they do there. And it's only because the projector's having color issues lately. Um, but purple for Matthew, green for Mark, blue for Luke, and that uh, whatever that puke yellow is on John. I'm, I'm colorblind myself anyway. So, <laughs> All right. After Jesus had said these things, and while they were still reclining at the table and eating, he became deeply troubled and said, I'm telling you the truth. One of you will betray me, even someone who is eating with me. And that is a blend of all four of the gospel narratives. All right. And they got the little superscript numbers there. Four, two, four, one, two, four, two. You see how that works? Anyway, it's just kind of a neat, neat mechanism for doing this. The disciples became extremely distressed and looked around at each other, wondering who he meant. They began to ask each other which one of them might do this. One by one, they asked him, Lord, am I the one? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping his hand in the dish with me. Look, the hand of the one who is betraying me is with me on the table. The Son of Man will indeed go as it has been determined and predicted in the Scriptures, but how awful it will be for the one who betrays him. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Then Judas asked him, Rabbi, am I the one? You have said it yourself, Jesus replied. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining Next to him, so Simon Peter motioned to this uh, disciple to find out from Jesus who he meant. The disciple leaned closer to Jesus and said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one I give this piece of bread to after I have dipped it in the dish. After dipping the, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. Judas took it and immediately Satan entered into him. Then Jesus said to him, what you're doing, do quickly. None of those at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that since Judas had charge of the money bag, Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Immediately after Judas took the piece of bread, he left and it was night. After he had gone, Jesus said, now is the son of man has been glorified and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and he will glorify him very soon. Little children, I am with you for only a little while longer. You will look for me, but just as I said to the Jews, you cannot come where I'm going. So now I say it also to you. And then what follows that immediately is the communion service. So this, uh, this resource by Cheney as well, Jesus Christ, the greatest life. Whoops, didn't mean to do that. Bring that back up. I meant to do this. Uh, Johnson, Johnston M. Cheney and Stanley Ellison are the authors on that. Johnston M. Cheney and Stanley A. Ellison. So, if you're interested in that, you can find that. All right. Good hybrid narrative and a good sequence. And it's in total agreement with, uh, with what we've done here in our studies and, and patching these verses together. And it precedes the communion service. All right. This is where I believe the Luke order is, is problematic. That uh, in the Luke order, 
communion is narrated early and then the betrayer is identified and then the betrayer departs. And that means that an unbeliever took partook of communion there uh, with you know, the Lord's blessing. I, I think it's significant that once the betrayer departs um, and what we see here in John 13, verse 30 says, so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out that very moment, no sooner had that door hit him and, you know, oops, no sooner had that door closed. Jesus said, now, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. How many opportunities did Judas have on this final night? But Satan entered into him and there's no turning back. What you do, do quickly and out the door. Okay. And uh, there's no turning back. Like when you're strapped into the roller coaster, okay? You're on for the ride. You're strapped in. The thing started going. You can't get off then. You'd, you'd be more, more dangerous to try to unbuckle and unstrap. And uh, you can't even do it anyway, right? You try to climb off while, it, while it's going up the ramp. Can't do it. Once you're strapped in and the thing starts cranking away, you're, 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 you're not done till it's done, okay? This was Jesus' roller coaster moment right here, <laughs> Okay? Judas goes out, the door is closed. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And I appreciate that. So we go from the defection of Judas to the warning about further desertions. And I really think John gives us the best sequence on this, that uh, he starts warning them that you um, have to depart now and, and uh, so forth, and warning them about their own desertions, that they're going to fall away. And Peter says, oh, no, no, I'll never do that. I'll never do that. Okay, this is the context for Peter's uh, rash vow. His, oh, I'll never deny you. All right, so this is point seven. Let's take a look and start working on this, uh, these warnings. Judas's departure occasions warnings to the eleven. The occasion of Judas's departure sparks warnings to the eleven. So if... Uh, Um, if you have a failure, if there's uh, if there's a failure in the flock, and somebody departs, do we kill ourselves with guilt over it, or do we warn the ones that are still here? <laughs> all right, saying all right, we got something to learn from this. Somebody's gone now, and they, and whether they left for wrong reasons, right reasons, or in between, doesn't matter. The occasion of their departure is an opportunity for us to evaluate. Is there something to be learned from this? And that's what we see here. All four Gospels record the warning. In Matthew 26, it's verses 31 through 35. That in, in the Matthew record, it's, uh, there's a gap of verses in there because in Matthew's record and Mark's record, um, they insert the communion story first, and then after communion, they detail the Lord's warnings. Um, John does not include the communion service in his record. So, you know, if, if all you're reading is John 13, you might squeeze communion in between verse 30 and 31. But that seems awkward because of the urgency of verse 31 where he says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now. 
And so I prefer to put the warning after the uh, or uh, the warning before the communion service. All right. Uh, in Mark, it's Mark 14, verses 27 through 31. In Luke, it's Luke 22, verses 31 through 38. That's after a huge gap of eight verses in there. But uh, not a gap that records Passover. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, not the gap that records. Uh, it's a different gap. Okay, it's not. It does not include the uh, communion. Communion was earlier in uh, in Luke 22. All right. Jesus teaches the. Oh. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I forgot to uh, to do that. All right. De- uh, point A. You have to listen and write because I don't have slides. I do that as placeholders, and then I intend to go back to Microsoft Word and copy them over, and uh, I failed to copy them over. Jesus teaches the eleven that Zechariah thirteen seven is about to be fulfilled. He teaches the eleven that Zechariah thirteen seven is about to be fulfilled, and he advises them to meet him in Galilee after his resurrection. Let's look at Zechariah thirteen. Thirteen seven. Awake, O shepherd! Awake, O sword! All right, Zechariah chapter thirteen. Verse seven says, "Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and and against the man my associate," declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. All right. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. Then it goes on. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. But the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined. And test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name. And I will answer them. I will say they are my people. And they will say the Lord is my God. All right. Now here's a prophecy in Zechariah 13, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9. And if you don't rightly divide the word of truth, you will keep the entire thing together and say, well, there's going to be one complete application. If you rightly divide the word of truth, you're going to see how this is uh, verse 7 ought to be separated from verses 8 and 9. And how we have a a prophetic shift between first advent and second advent. All right. Following this in Zechariah, you get into chapter 14 and you're talking about the the day of the Lord and the gathering of the nations against Jerusalem and the the, uh, deliverance there and the establishment of the millennial kingdom. And so we can identify with a second advent fulfillment. But when we turn to Matthew 26, what do we see? Matthew 26, 31. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. This night, not second advent, 
Not day of the Lord, not tribulation. This night. You all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd of the sheep and of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So as I wrote the point out, point A, Jesus teaches the 11 that Zechariah 13, 7 is about to be fulfilled. He then advises them to meet him in Galilee after his resurrection. He then advises them to meet him in Galilee after the resurrection. After I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. All right, so let's meet up there. You can't follow. I'm going on a cross. You can't follow. I'm going in the ground. You can't follow. But after I'm raised, you ought to be in Galilee. And it's interesting. They didn't go to Galilee. They stayed there. On that Sunday morning, they were still there. Mary Magdalene went and got Peter and John and said, the tomb's empty. And they go run into the tomb. He didn't say, after I'm raised, go running into the tomb, make sure my body's gone. <laughs> right? He says, I'll, meet, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Meet me in Galilee. This uh, is, is remarkable because we're going to find several statements uh, along the way where we, we see that they didn't have any faith. They didn't understand. It's only when they're standing in the empty tomb, looking down, seeing the cloth, then they believed. Had they believed prior, they'd have been in Galilee already. Okay? It takes time to walk to Galilee. From, from, uh, but had they left on Friday? Okay? Could they have? Anyway. Um, so we have the warnings here. Um, at first, that's right. That's right. There, there were different occasions. He met them several times. And, and sometimes they recognized him, sometimes they didn't. And uh, sometimes they met him uh, like in the upper room, uh, walking along the beach. There were different venues where they met him. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about each one of those. He's got a whole 40-day resurrection ministry that will take us some time. All right, the Mark record's fairly close to this as well. Mark uh, 14. I think they're largely similar. Mark 14. And both in Matthew and in Mark, by the way, this warning comes to them after they sing the hymn and leave the upper room. I don't know if you spotted that in Matthew when I read that. In Matthew 26, 30, after communion in 26 through 29, then in verse 30, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And it's while they're walking that he warns them uh, about falling away. And where Peter says, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And uh, no, rooster's going to crow three times. It's the same sequence in Mark. Uh, the Lord's Supper is verses 22 through 25. In verse 26, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter said, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. All right. 
Then they come to Gethsemane there in verse 32. So that's Mark's order of things. Luke's order of things. Luke 22, 31 through 38. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Ooh, this is new. (laughs) Okay. Let me outline these here for you in just a moment. So point A. Again, Jesus teaches the 11 that Zechariah 13 is about to be fulfilled. He then advises them to meet him in Galilee after his resurrection. B. Peter and the other 10 call Jesus a liar and accuse the scriptures of being inaccurate. Peter and the other ten. He wasn't alone, by the way. We, we, we say that he was alone because he's the only one that gets rebuked and he's the one that says, and Jesus says to him, that, you know, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Uh, the other ten don't get a similar prophecy. But uh, all ten, likewise, are in agreement with Peter. That they will not be, they will not fall away. They're not going to leave him. They won't betray him. They all share in that. Matthew 26, verses 33 through 35. Mark 14, verses 29 through 31. Again, back to Matthew. Matthew 26, verses 33 through 35. And I apologize. I thought I had these slides ready to go. I realize it's easier to write this down if you have the slide up there to look at. All right, so again, uh, Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, in other words, all of them, those guys, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you this very night before a rooster uh, crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. So what's he doing? He's calling Jesus a liar. And he's discounting the prophecies of Scripture. Jesus is reading him a Bible verse. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be, shall be scattered. Jesus says tonight will be the fulfillment of Zechariah 13.7. And the disciples say, well, I don't care what you say. And I don't care what the Bible says. That's just your interpretation of the Bible. (laughs) That's just what you think it means. Pretty extraordinary. All right. Pretty extraordinary. And notice, all the disciples said the same thing too. See that there in verse 35? So don't just rag on Peter. Okay. James and John and the other Judas, not Iscariot, right? Matthew and... And all these guys, Thaddeus, all the disciples said the same thing too. We won't deny you. We won't deny you. The scriptures will be fulfilled. Uh, Mark has a similar testimony as well. Mark 14, verses 29 through 31. Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. We're ready to die. We're ready to die. We're ready to die. 
And what's remarkable, they, they get to the garden. There's only three of them in the garden. And uh, the soldiers come, and they scatter. Okay? <laughs> they follow at a distance. They watch at a distance from the trial. They watch at a distance, and only two of them are even at the cross. One in faith to receive his mother, and one in unbelief. <clears throat> All right. We'll discuss that as well. Thirdly, point C. Jesus prophesies a short-term prophecy. It's not often thought of this, but understand, before the, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. That's a prophecy. Now, he utters it after dark in the evening, whatever time of day it is. Maybe it's 10 o'clock, whatever. It's not midnight yet. Um, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, whatever. It's night. It's dark. He still has quite a bit to teach in John, in John 14, 15, 16, 17. There's still a lot of Bible class left to go. He's not yet in the, in the garden at midnight. So let's just say it's 9 o'clock. And he's making a prophecy that will be fulfilled the next morning at dawn as the rooster crows. That Peter will deny him three times. And why is that important? Why is he prophesying that ahead of time? <clears throat> Just like we saw on the Mount Olivet Discourse. Short-term prophecy, long-term prophecy. And the short-term prophecy should be the goad. It should be the encouragement, the assurance that everything else, all the church-age doctrine that they're going to get hit with, about the Holy Spirit coming, about the Comforter, about abiding in the Word, about bearing fruit, about Christ in the vine, about everything in John 14 through 17. They should have total confidence and excitement about. As soon as that rooster crows, okay? Now Peter himself will be heartbroken and go out weeping and feeling awful. But it's the literal fulfillment of a short-term prophecy that gives the assurance pertaining to long-term Prophecy. So point C, Jesus prophesies a short-term prophecy which should encourage the eleven to everything else he will communicate between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. They're going to actually go on a walk. And what we think of as the upper room discourse technically could be thought of as the on the walk from the upper room to Gethsemane discourse. <laughs> but that's too long. That doesn't fit on a bumper sticker the walk from the upper room to the garden of gethsemane discourse the great discourse from 14 through 17 where he taught his disciples all right and trying to reconcile when they sang the hymn and left the upper room and when they got to gethsemane because in the synoptic is just like they sang they left the room gethsemane was right next door okay they're, i mean they're just one verse later they're at gethsemane already and uh, in the record of John, no, there was a very lengthy discourse and, and a long walk by the time they got there. All right. So, um, okay, if you just want to spot this, we'll, we'll come back to this next week. But in Matthew 26, you got the contrast between verse uh, 34 and verse 36. He says, one of you will be, or you will deny me three times. And then in verse 36, they come to Gethsemane. Likewise, in Mark, you will deny me. They leave the room. They come to Gethsemane. In Luke, that's Mark 14, verses 30 and 32. 
Mark 14, verses 30 and 32. Before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. There's the prophecy. And then verse 32, they come to Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And that's where he drops off seven of the ten. And then he takes with him Peter, James, and John, and they go further into the garden. Began to be very distressed and troubled. It's kind of interesting. If he leaves them at the entrance, he leaves, a, he leaves seven of them at the, at the entrance. He takes three of them further within. What did those seven do when the soldiers showed up? <laughs> did they block the entrance? No, I think they scattered. The texture says they scattered. Cockroaches when the lights come on, right? Just 50 different directions. All right. In Luke 22, it's verse 34 and 39. Luke 22 is verse 34 and 39. The prophecy, the rooster will not crow today until you've denied three times that you know me. And then verse 39. He came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples also followed him. In the Luke record, we have the uh, uh, extra equipping whereby they took a couple of swords with them. We've got to discuss that. Why is it these swords are needed? All right. Well, we'll pick up on this next week. It's 11 o'clock and it's awkward not having your points on the screen to look at. So again, I apologize. <laughs> that was my Homer Simpson moment right there. All right. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for um, your patience. Your absolute patience, Father, because every single one of us has had the Peter attitude at one time or another. And oh, I would never do that. And oh, Judas might have betrayed you, but I won't. And uh, Father, um, I pray that none of us would be so prideful to think that the uh, activity we observe in others is somehow impossible for us to engage in. Father, when... Uh, even if a brother is caught in any trespass, we who are spiritual are to restore such a one, looking to ourselves, Father, lest we too be tempted. I pray that we would learn what this spirit of gentleness is all about, Father, that we can have the proper attitude related to these, to these things. But I thank you that our Savior is so patient. I thank you that he just continued on faithfully, uttering his prophecies, teaching his disciples knowing that one of them was already out there uh, bringing the soldiers and the others uh, were still with him but ready to scatter. And Father, uh, I pray as we continue to study this, uh, this, this night, this uh, most important night ever, Father, I pray that we would uh, learn the lessons that need to be learned and, uh, and see where the application is for our stewardship in our day and age. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.